Good morning, everyone. So great to see you. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Christ the King. We've been reading in the Old Testament prophets for the last few weeks. So our next reading comes from the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 55. We'll read and then pray and see what, see what the Lord might say to us this morning. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall be to the Lord for a memorial, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord Jesus, thank you for this church. Um, for those of us, Lord, who are gathered this morning to be with you, to be together, to be your body. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would, in fact, Lord, bless this time, our worship, Lord, all that we say and do, every bit of it, every song, every lyric, the psalms that we read, the scripture we read, our coming to the table. Jesus, may all of it be blessing to you, including that which we think together now and hold together. We ask you, Lord, that you would, in fact, Holy Spirit, prepare our, our lives to be fertile ground, the kind that can receive your word. Would you defend and protect us, God, from an enemy who would snatch it away? Would you, God, give us grace even from our own thoughts, Lord? Give us liberation, Lord, freedom from our own distractions so that we can hear you, Jesus. We look to you, Lord, now, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. It's so good to um, be with all of you. For those of you who've been here the last few weeks, um, we've been going through this study in the Old Testament prophets, and um, it's it has been not exactly a chill way to spend the summer, which we started out the season by saying, you know, everybody thinks about the summer as the time when you like, you know, kind of relax and let your hair down and, you know, take it easy. And uh, we just decided to go straight to the Old Testament prophets instead. And um, that's because this is, of course, our great green growing season in the liturgical calendar. For those of you maybe not familiar with the church calendar, um, it's a great big stretch of time that extends all the way from the end of the Easter season to the beginning of Advent, and it's our green season. It's our growing season. It's the season when we're meant to like think about together what does it mean to be the people of God to actually be the church in between these like high water marks of our faith, you know, Advent and Lent and Easter like ordinary, everyday faith. How do we grow? What does that even mean? How are we meant to grow? What does God do in us? And so one of the reasons that we're with the Old Testament prophets is because um, it is the conviction of the Lord, the conviction of the prophets, the conviction of Scripture, that our growth and the fruit that we're meant to bear as a result comes about um, by exactly as Jesus was saying in the parable. It's the seed of God, the word of God in us, living through us, active in us, the spirit taking hold of God's word and it 
like bearing fruit in our lives. That's the kind of growth that we're meant for. And the role of the prophet has always been to help us realign, to reconcile us to God, where we have come out of alignment. If our thinking, our living, our acting, if that has somehow gotten off kilter or away from the Lord, then the prophet's job was to like hold forth the word of God in a powerful way, sometimes in a dramatic way, so that people could hear and see and be brought back into alignment so that we could be reconciled. Because when we're reconciled, then we grow. So that's why we're in the prophets. Today, uh, we're, in, um, we're in Isaiah 55. I don't know that you can immediately, no doubt some of you recognize the passage, but it's one of my favorite, this chapter, my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. Uh, it's beautiful, profound. We're picked up at verse 10, but the passage begins, uh, Come, all you who are thirsty. Uh, come to the waters, and you have no money. Come, buy, and eat. You probably recognize those words. What a powerful invitation. Come, you who are thirsty. Come, buy and eat. You who have no money. The prophet's holding forth a world and an invitation that on the surface seems like impossible. How do you buy food or wine or money without, or wine without money? How do you get those things if you don't have money because we live in a world in which the people who have money have those things and the people who don't have money don't have those things and so what is the prophet saying this passage came to Israel many many years after Zechariah's ministry Zechariah's who we were with last week and I just I've been doing a little bit of contextual work every time that we're together because it's easy to forget that um, or easy yeah I think to forget hard to remember that these are real people who lived at a, a real time in history and had to like, you know, say things out of their real mouths, you know, to other real people about what God was doing. And so after Zechariah's ministry came Isaiah's ministry, this writer's ministry, this prophet's ministry. And it was like post-post-exile. If you remember from last week, Zechariah was one of those who had to preach to God's people after the exile. And if you've not been here, then um, just a quick reminder. After um, we split into two kingdoms in your Old Testament, then there was one kingdom left, and then that kingdom gets swallowed up by Babylon and taken God's people into exile. And it is a huge cataclysmic event in your Old Testament, a defining, paradigmatic moment in your Hebrew Bible. That moment changes a lot for God's people. It also births a lot for God's people, but it's huge. This guy who's writing and prophesying now is after Zechariah. So we've been back home now for a while. If you remember last week, Zechariah was tasked to prophesy and preach after the returnees had come back to Jerusalem. So they've been given an edict that they can go home. They've left exile now. They're back in the land, and it's hard in the land back home. Being back home didn't make things right and well. There's a lot of work to be done. And so that was Zechariah's ministry. And now it's even years after that when Isaiah begins to preach and teach, prophesy. And so the reason that I'm making it a point to tell you that is because if you are a careful reader and you've spent any time in the book of Isaiah, when you read in the beginning of the book of Isaiah, um, you'll notice that you're in a very different time in history. There are a lot of references to Assyria, for example. Assyria was the empire of the day centuries before the exile happened. And so by the time you get all the way to the latter chapters of the book, 
We're talking about different emperors, different empires altogether. In other words, we're speaking to a very different time in history with centuries between them, all in one book, 66 chapters. But it comes to us all packaged up together as the book of Isaiah, the words of the prophet Isaiah, spanning centuries of time. Now, either we've got a Methuselah situation happening here in which we just, you know, somebody slipped through and lived for centuries, all one person, or something else is going on. Chapters after chapter about 39, starting in particularly 44 and onwards, scholars refer to this part of the book as Second Isaiah because it's clear that there's a break. Now we're dealing with a very different type of history, a very different time and place. First Isaiah was one person, and now we have, presumably, another person. And maybe they're both named Isaiah. Let's just say for the sake of argument that they are. Now, some of you will hear this and be like, cool, makes perfect sense to me, I've heard it before, no trouble. Some of you will hear that and think, well, that is troubling. I don't like that at all. If it's two different people, why don't they have two different names? Why isn't this person clearly addressing this time and now we have a different person addressing this time? I don't like it. Makes me feel uncomfortable. A lot like when you are, for example, if you grew up in a tradition in which you heard that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, as did I. Moses is the giver of the law. The law is the Torah, those first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He wrote them all. And that makes perfect sense until you come to Deuteronomy 34. And in Deuteronomy 34, you hear, and then this line, and then Moses died when he was 120 years old, and the Lord buried him in Moab. And you think to yourself, what? Now, either that is some impressive prophecy <laughs> and a disconcerting moment for Moses to have to record his own death and foretell it that way, or... Something else is going on. Here's the, why are we talking about this? Some of you are like, why in God's name are we talking about this? On a perfectly fine Sunday, and we could be talking about something else. Here's why we're talking about it. Because, for those of us, oh, because. Isaiah 55 is one of the most powerful chapters in all of the Bible. It is a promise to you. Those words, my word, as surely as the rain and the snow goes out and does not return empty, but yields that for which I sent it, so too is the word that goes out of my mouth. It will accomplish that for which I have sent it. It will not return to me empty. That, that promise has been for me as a follower of Jesus an anchor for my soul. The words of the parable that Jesus said, God is a sower and he is sowing seed. He is doing it always, all the time. That's his job. It's who he is. He loves it. He exists to sow things, to create. He's a gardener. You can't separate a gardener from the instinct to grow. It's who they are. It's who your God is. He is sowing seed. The only question is, on what is it falling? How is it being received? And that's terrifying if you think yourself a very complicated person. 
And I have much of my life um, believed myself to be. And in fact, I think safe to say at this point, I am a complicated person. And so of those types of soil, the likelihood that I'm either rocky or thorny or pavement, pretty high for a person like me. Maybe fertile soil. What does fertile soil mean? Maybe in order to be fertile soil, I just check my questions at the door. Maybe in order to be fertile soil, to be the good kind, to be the faithful kind, I just need to think differently, not ask questions. In case you have ever been a person who has been in faith environments and asked questions specifically about your Bible, and that made you feel afraid or uncomfortable or like you weren't allowed to, couldn't, or it wouldn't be received, then from one sister to another, let me just remind you that the commandment of the Lord is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. He made your mind. He made your questions. He's not afraid. My word, as surely as the rain and the snow go out and accomplish the purposes for which I sent them, so too will my word, when it goes out, accomplish the purposes for which I have sent it. I suspect he can take care of my complicated soil, is what I'm saying. And I suspect he can take care of yours. If you grew up in a tradition in which you have only ever heard that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and it's deeply unsettling to hear anything other, it's okay, I promise. If you are a person who grew up in a tradition in which you never heard who wrote the first five books of the Bible, <laughs> and you're just hearing that potentially Moses wrote them for the first time, it's okay. We've got issues with the Bible here in the Bible Belt. Complicated history for a lot of us. And I think what I want to say for us as a church is it's complicated. The best things always are a little bit. Anybody in here ever loved somebody? It's complicated complicated to love. It's complicated. Has anybody ever in here, oh, I don't know, tried to be in a fruitful and fruit-bearing relationship with the God of the universe? Complicated. It is. It's also the best thing. We cannot settle for less, I guess is what I'm saying. My commitment here is to honor God's word and the giver of that word always and to let that word challenge us where we need to be challenged, trusting that God is big enough to take care of my being complicated and your being complicated and his Bible being complicated. He's big enough and good enough. Amen. Amen. Mm, the word of God. The word of God is living and active. Jesus is at the head and the helm of the church. Jesus is the word of God who was with God and, John says, is God. And he is good and complicated and faithful 
and as gentle as a lamb. And if that's who he is, then I can expect that his word will probably bear semblances to its author. Amen. So we have an invitation, I believe, a little bit to wrestle with the Bible this morning. And so that's what we'll do together. Think about it together. The first thing that I would want you to know before we do that, and we're all still kind of getting to know one another. I've only been here for a year or so, and some of you are here probably for the very first time. Um, You should know that I have been infatuated with the Bible my whole life. Um, My mom had a giant King James Bible when I was growing up. It was as big as the Book of Life. When I was a kid, it looked even bigger. It was massive. She would plop it open on her lap, you know, at night in her bed and read it and cry. I have wanted to, for as long as I can remember, crawl inside those pages and figure out what was going on in there, mesmerized by it. I went to vacation Bible school as a good Baptist kid, and we had VBS, and um, we marched the Bible down the center of the aisle. Anybody else? Do you remember it? Like this. We'd march it down and pledge allegiance to God's holy word, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I loved every second of it. When I got all grown up, I went to seminary, not for a job, but because I wanted to crawl inside those pages. Always have. And my first lecture of Old Testament survey, I cried through the last 15 minutes of class. Wept, actually. It was embarrassing. All these other um, mainline students, they're Methodists, Catholics, Lutherans. Here's this Baptist girl in the back just bawling her eyes out. And they were so sophisticated and put together. And the reason I think that I was crying is because it was a wonderful invitation to wrestle with something that was actually as beautiful and powerful as I had always known that it was. And it was terrifying because I also was presented with a challenge to relearn and unlearn things I thought I knew. And that didn't feel good. Part of it felt good and exciting. The other part did not feel good. It felt scary and confusing, painful even. And what's interesting is that that feeling that I felt in 20-whatever-it-was as an American is not entirely dissimilar from what was happening for God's people back in Judah, in Jerusalem, back in the land, as people were trying to rebuild. You talk about a faith crisis. Imagine yourself being the covenanted people of God 
to whom God had promised directly to you that there would always be a throne and that your people would always be on it and that you were God's way in the world. This was how you understood who you were. It was your identity, God's word, and you and your identity all bound up together. And then the exile and everything came undone. There wasn't even a throne anymore, let alone a Jew on it. All of it in shambles. And if you've ever had a moment of deconstruction, what's fascinating to me is that the Bible gives us an image of exactly what it feels like. And one might argue, as painful as your deconstruction process was, it probably fails and pales in comparison to actual socio-political exile. And mine was tough, but wasn't that tough? That's a faith crisis. That's a dark night of the soul. How do we understand God's word? How do we trust it? Why didn't they tell us this was going to happen? What did he mean if he said somebody was going to be on the throne all the time? And now there's no throne and there's no king. How do we make any sense of it? You can't trust any of them. None of it makes any sense. I'm out. I'm done. Sound familiar? So many people are wrestling with God's word that way. So many people are wrestling with the church that way. And the people of God, what I'm trying to say, is have been wrestling that way for a long time. That is not a new feeling. It's also not a bad feeling. Please hear me. Part of faith will inevitably hold and contain as a part of itself a time of growth. And sometimes, y'all, the growth feels good and is exciting, like camp. And sometimes the growth does not feel as good and is not as exciting, like being here today. <laughs> For some of us. Or whenever your moment was. All of it, somehow, can it be, how could it be good? God's word's supposed to be a light for our feet. But insisting that therefore the Bible should be easy, clear to understand, will not make it so. It says it right there in black and white. I gotta just read it. I did. I have. We are. Some of it is super clear. Not easy. Take up your cross and follow me. Pretty clear. It's just not easy. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Clear. He did not stutter. We don't need to contextualize it. He meant what he said. Go make disciples. It's just not easy. And then some of it is less clear, and it just is. And here's what I'm saying to you. For the parts that are clear, they require the Holy Spirit for me both to understand and to do them. The parts that are unclear also require the Holy Spirit to help me understand them and to wrestle with God. Because that is, I believe, you all, the invitation of the Word of God has always been for us, His people, to wrestle, not just to get it right. If you get it right without wrestling, it's going to make you lazy. Eventually, 
And we may be tempted to believe that we can get it right without the help of the Spirit. And that would be a fatal mistake. The invitation of this God who is, as the Celts say, he's like a wild goose, the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard that before? You're Anglican, you should know. You're Celtic heritage. Celts refer to him, the Holy Spirit, as a goose. Have you ever tried to chase a goose? <laughs> Sometimes they come at you. <laughs> and just when you turn around and try to go towards them, what do they do? They just turn right and run the other way. Tricky. The Holy Spirit is like. And the invitation all the way back to Genesis. Do you remember Jacob on the side of the river? going to take a nap and then he sees a stranger in the middle of the night and he and this stranger they end up wrestling till daybreak do you remember the story they wrestle Jacob knows it's the angel of the Lord he says and he wrestles with him anyway he wrestles and then he sees the sun come up and God says to Jacob all right all right let me go and Jacob says "Mm -mm, not until you bless me that moment is your namesake That moment is the moment that Jacob went from being Jacob to what? What's your name? Your name is Israel. Your spiritual spiritual heritage is striving with God, wrestling with God. That is who we are. That is our invitation and our promise that you serve and love and can know a God who can be taken hold of, who wants to be contended with, who wants you to wrestle back. Woo! That is good news for complicated people like me. Amen. Chutzpah. It is a gift, I believe. We're meant to write it in in the New Testament. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Stand up. You have questions, ask, stand up, wrestle, think back. Tell me, you, you who are so mad about the injustice, get off Twitter. Pray. Wrestle with me. You who have questions about who wrote the first five books of the Bible, read them. Read them. And then come stand in front of his presence and say, explain to me, and he will. Because as sure as the rain and the snow, as sure as the rain and the snow, go out and accomplish the purposes for which they were sent, so too every word that comes from the mouth of God will accomplish that which he desires and that for which he has purposed. I will tell you a story. When I was 19, I, from Viola, Arkansas, town of, we say 390 on the sign, we lie. I went to China. And I was on a bus in a Chinese city on the other side of the world. And I was looking out at all those people, the only white person for so many, many, many miles that I knew of. And I was suddenly, spiritually, culturally, and existentially deeply uncomfortable, troubled. It's not what you want to feel as an evangelist. What you want to feel is, look at that harvest. 
Good news. I'm here. You sent forth for the laborers, and I'm here. You want to feel sure. You want to feel certain. Just can't wait. Get out there and tell them everything I know. And that is not what I felt. Hollowed out, terrified, confused. And so I crawled back to my hotel room and I spent the rest of the day trying, begging God to help me make sense of anything that I ever thought I knew. And this doesn't happen to me all the time. So... I'm not more spiritual than you. I was just really desperate and a long way from home. And I believe, as sure as I'm standing here and you're sitting there, that I heard the Lord say to me, my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. As high as the heavens are. So are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Guess what? Heaven is not just higher. Heaven is altogether a different kind of metaphysical reality. We're not in the Middle Ages anymore. Heaven is not up. Heaven is all around us, on the other side of the door, according to John the Revelator. It's God's space, God's sphere, and it's all around you all the time. It's just higher. Do you know what I mean? God's space, God's mind, God's thoughts, who he is, is metaphysically a different reality. It's other than me. And so what he's asking for is for me to put my mind in the service of who he is so that I can think my thoughts according to his heart and his mind, not my own. It will take the help of heaven. It will take the help of his spirit to understand who he is, and I'll be grappling with him and wrestling with him all my life. By the way, those words, that's Isaiah 55. The rest of the passage, the one you just read. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It was a promise. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. You don't have to make sense of all of it. Just wrestle with me. Become a person of my word. Eat this book. Speaking of John the Revelator, what was the invitation of John on the Isle of Patmos when he had his own faith crisis? What did the angel tell him to do? Here's the scroll. Let me explain it to you. Get out your pen and your paper. I'm going to explain it to you. No, it's not what the angel said. What did the angel say? Eat it. John. Swallow it down. Get it inside you. Let me teach you. Walk with me. Learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. I believe in devotional reading. We're meant to read devotionally. You do not have to have degrees to read your Bible. Go sit in your room, read, and pray. God is God. He can take care of you. He speaks all languages across all times and place. You don't need degrees to hear from him. And yet, in addition to our devotional reading, we also have to have disciplined reading. We have to study. We have to read with people who do have degrees. We do. And trying to pretend that we don't is not helping any of us. There's a reason people go to school and get good at what they do. I want them to do that. I need scientists to go learn science and then come explain physics to me. 
I need doctors to go learn about our bodies and then come explain bodies to me. I need text critics to go learn about literature and then come explain literature to me. And I get to benefit. It's a gift. It's not shaming you because you don't know. It's a grace and a gift that God wants to give. We're meant to read together and study together. Christian people, Jewish people have been huddling together in spaces with God's word forever. That's the kind of reading we do together. We're meant to. We're meant to wrestle and ask questions of each other and give voice to our doubts and our confusion. That's not bad. It doesn't always feel good. Sometimes the gift doesn't. So what is the purpose for which it was sent? That's the question. What is the purpose? What is God's word trying to accomplish in you and in the world? Well, according to Isaiah, it's blessing. It's going to bear fruit just like snow and rain. It will yield things. Good things will grow in my life, in your life. That's the purpose of God's word. Yes, blessing. But unfortunately, sometimes blessing also means admitting that I don't know, that I'm confused, that I have questions. That was the exile. Israel was like, you said You said we would be your priesthood. You said we would have a throne forever. And God said, I did. And you're going to have exile. And maybe the way that you walk through suffering, maybe the way you walk through doubt, maybe the way you walk through homelessness, maybe that can be a blessing. Maybe good will come out of that that will yield good for other people. Maybe your humility and your suffering, walking the way of the cross, might just bless somebody. What if we're meant to just admit what we don't know? What if that's okay? You don't have to know it all. You can't. We won't. And he's not asking you to. Maybe a blessing could come out of the journey, the search, and the wrestling. Maybe he could till up soil first and then plant something. I'm going to close with this uh, poem. If you've never read this book and it sounds good to you, you should read it. It's called Let Your Life Speak. It's by Parker Palmer. He wrote a poem, and I've been reading it over and over since I moved about a year ago. He says this. The plow has savaged this sweet field. Misshapen clods of earth kicked up, rocks and twisted roots exposed to view. Last year's growth demolished by the blade. I've plowed my life this way, turned over a whole history, looking for the roots of what went wrong until my face is ravaged, furrowed, scarred. Enough. The job is done. Whatever's been uprooted, let it be. Seedbed for the growing that's to come. I plowed to unearth last year's reasons. The farmer plows to plant a greening season. Sower's got to sow. He just will. His word is always going out. And it is for you. You're not broken. He made that brain. 
He made your heart and your life. And he has things to say to you. Amen. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear, Lord. We've done our part. Or at least we're going to try to. And so, in the spirit of our brother Jacob, we're just going to stand here on the riverbank and wait. Take hold of us, Lord. Help us learn from you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.